Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I hear the train a coming, it's rolling around a bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. But that train keeps rolling. What's going on guys? My name is Alden Nero and welcome to another bonus episode of the Midnight Hour. Last Saturday night I went to see Brand New and Biffy Clyro at the Point Theatre in Dublin and when that was over I went to a Palestinian kebab shop to smoke shisha for about two hours. Then the next afternoon I dragged what was left of my voice onto Skype to record episode 74 of the podcast and... Well, my voice was shot and still has not completely recovered. All that was left of it was gravelly pain and Liam Gallagher-esque noises of frustration. So sadly, what I had planned as a full episode did not turn out to be one, and I think you'll hear how unwilling I am to speak at certain points. What happened instead of the planned episode was a conversation with business insider journalist Michelle Mark, who primarily reports on the justice system in America and has a lot to say on that subject. This episode, in air quotes, is basically us laying the foundations for a much more in-depth future episode that you're probably going to hear in the new year, but I think there'll be some stuff in here you'll find pretty damn interesting. If you've ever wondered how America is coping with the war on drugs or whether lengthy prison sentences are beneficial with regard to preventing reoffending, well, we kind of touch on those topics here. The episode is opened by Johnny Cash's Folsom Prison Blues, for fairly obvious reasons, I would imagine. I guess it's one of my favorite songs about prison by one of my favorite artists of all time. But the song actually reminds me of when I was 15 years old, and I bought two Johnny Cash CDs that were on sale in HMV because of the release of the movie Walk the Line. Um, live at Folsom Prison and live at San Quentin, those were the albums, and I played the whole way through Resident Evil 4 with those two albums as the soundtrack, so I associate this song with one of the best video game experiences of my life, and I'm really grateful to Johnny Cash for writing it into his will before he died that I could use this song on my podcast. If you want to discuss the episode or anything relating to the podcast, check out the subreddit page in the description, or if you can't do that for whatever reason, go to reddit.com slash or slash midnight hour. I almost said go to midnighthour.com. Don't go there. I don't own that domain. I've tried to purchase it, but uh, it's not happening, so I think I am going to make a website for the podcast, but I actually don't know what to call it, so that's pretty annoying, but if you you also check the description you'll see my twitter uh, michelle's twitter her business insider page and various other links relating to the podcast such as the itunes and podbean and whatever i hope you guys like the conversation and if it sparks any light bulbs in your brain regarding future topics you'd like for me to discuss definitely leave a comment or a post in the subreddit because as you can tell from the recent activity, I am in the podcast zone right now and nothing can pull me out of it. And it's society's fault. They let me get in my zone and this is what happened. But yeah, I don't have a whole lot else to say about the episode. I mean, I think it speaks for itself. But one thing I need to say straight up for context is that we began the discussion by talking about Brendan Dassey. Brandon Dassey. Brendan Dassey? Brendan Dassey. I just Googled it. Podcasting 101. But... Usually Americans are called Brandon instead of Brendan, so, um, and Craig instead of Craig, what's that? Anyway, listen, um, we started talking about uh, Brendan Dassey at the very start because I think it was sort of the easiest and most topical way into the discussion, but also I really wanted to know what was going on there. If you're not familiar with who Brendan Dassey is, he is the nephew, I believe, of Stephen Avery, who was the forefront, uh, the focus, the centerpiece of the... Uh, award-winning Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer, which was huge at this time last year. And it was realistically, I guess, one of the biggest pieces of pop culture that was being consumed around the globe. And everybody was talking about it everywhere. So if you are not familiar with that case, don't worry. We only talk about it very, very briefly um, and then move, well, I guess, use that discussion as a bridge into a much broader discussion about... 
um, about drug offenders and how they get trapped in the system for uh, virtually harmless offenses, I suppose would be the way to put it. But I'm not even going to waste any more time on this intro because one thing I do is very long intros. Anyway, get back to listening to Johnny Cash. He will then segue really smoothly into the episode and my voice will sound so rough that it will actually mirror that of Johnny Cash. But anyway, enjoy the episode. I'll talk to you guys. My mama told me, son, always be a good boy. Don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. power in the verse can stop me. I mean, I, and I don't even really know what, what to say at this point about Brendan Dassey. Like, he's... Yeah, so what is actually happening there? Out of interest. So, um, yeah, no, like, the judge in that case ruled that his conviction, like, should be overturned. I, I think it was on the grounds that, like, his confession had been coerced by the police officers, and so they were like, no, like, we have to toss this conviction and then instantly the prosecutors appealed that decision and now he won't be released from jail until I guess that appeal process is over. Yeah, that whole thing is weird. Like, Yeah, it's, and I also like, don't really remember very much of that case anymore. All I know is that he shouldn't be in jail. Yeah, no, like it, what, look, what happened to him looks like just an extreme travesty of justice. Yeah, I can't believe that he... I don't know, like, I watched the whole thing of Making a Murderer, and I, all I took away from it was that the two of them may very well have done all of those things, but even if they did, they shouldn't yeah. be in jail based on the way that the trial went. Yeah, no, they really shouldn't. And, it, like, it goes to show, I mean, it's supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. I mean, it's really supposed to, like, the whole, like, bedrock, like, the principle that the justice system over here was founded upon was that it's, like, way better to let, like, guilty people go free than to lock innocent people up. Yeah. This is just, like, completely perverted, that notion. Yeah, it's crazy. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, my my sense from, like, the making a murderer thing, like, I just, I, I don't know about Stephen Avery. Like, I, I, I can't, like, I kind of went back and forth, and I was just like, I just don't, I don't know, like... <laughs> I don't know what to think about, like, his case and whether or not he's guilty, but, um, I mean, when you look at, like, the interviews with, um, with Brendan Dassey, like, the ones that he did with police, it's just, it, those are, those were really hard to watch. Yeah, the making a murderer thing was perfect, because it followed such a neatly laid narrative, and we crave narrative to understand any story, and yeah. the Ken Kratz guy was just such a perfect villain, like, I hated him so bad. Yeah. And yeah. then at the very end found out that he actually was a huge pervert, which, like, is one of those instances where, because I'm such a horrible person, I was like, yes! <laughs> I knew Vin it. I'm so glad that women had to suffer so that he could be ousted for the pervert that he is. Oh, I know. whole yeah. thing, when he was like, Brendan Dassey picks up the knife. He gives it to Stephen Avery and they cut her heart out and start eating it and all that stuff. I mean, that's not exactly what he said, but that whole entire thing was completely fictitious and disgusting. And, like, he said that on national TV or whatever, like, to... Yeah. Oh, it's horrible. Absolutely horrible. No, it's, um... Like, yeah, no, it just it just looks like that case was just a complete failure in in so many different ways. And, like, I don't know, like, it's... It's an extreme example, I think, of, like, the way the justice system works, but, like, it, it does happen a lot. Like, it shows how, how, like, how much power prosecutors and, um, and police have in the situation and, like, how important it is for people to be given a vigorous defense and, like, what happens when that's not the case. Like, um, didn't, didn't Brendan Dassey's defense attorney just, like, leave him alone in a room with, like, police officers for them to, like, interview him without any supervision? Yeah, I don't think it was a police officer. I think it was, um... Like... Uh, it, I think it was the state attorney. The, was it the prosecutor? It was one of the prosecutors or something like that. Yeah, yeah. and they were trying to just get him, like... Uh, that was horrible, the way he was treated by him. 
And he's yeah. like, oh, draw this and draw what you did and stuff like that. And it was so fake. Like, I, I don't know how anyone thought that anything good would come out of that. No, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, and that was, like, I guess, like, like some time ago as well. But I think that, I don't know, that stuff is still happening, like, all over the country today. To black people, mostly. Yeah, to, to black people a lot of the time. I, yeah, I think, like, I mean, it was interesting that, like, um, to see like, the types of prejudices that um, that prosecutors in, like, the local sheriff's office held towards, like, Stephen Avery and his family. Like, it was just, it was very, it's very similar to, like, a lot of the cases that, like, we read about, like, in, like, like today, where we see, like, and, like, we just, like, automatically assume, like, oh, like, the police are racist or, like, the prosecutors are racist and, like, I don't know, like, these seem to have, like, a lot of those, like, similar prejudices against, like, Stephen Avery, even though he was white and Brendan Dassey was white. Yeah, but they're so, like, white trash or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I think it, like, very much is, like, classism as well. Yeah, I think that's actually the biggest thing. I don't even think it is racism in America. I think it's classism, and because yeah, it... black people have been coerced into the position of, like, permanent underclass, that they happen to make up the bulk of people who get treated or mistreated by the system and things like yeah. that but it does happen to white people just not on anywhere near as vast a scale i suppose yeah yeah so no it was it was really enlightening to like to see that case unfold but um yeah i mean i don't know like i'm trying to think like there are so many depressing examples of like really similar instances that have happened like in the last couple of years in new york um are there are any of them people that you've interviewed yourself Sort of. Um, I'm in the middle of like a few interviews with um, with some federal inmates, um, and I'm talking to them about clemency. So it's like a little bit of a different. It's a little bit of a different case. Like um, none of them were charged with anything as severe as murder. Like a lot of like each of the people that I'm speaking with now, they have been uh, convicted of of like drug conspiracy. Okay. And those cases are, when you look at them, they're, they're really controversial. Like they're very, they're very flawed. They're very complicated. And, um, the reason that I'm talking, like I, I reached out to, um, to like a coordinator of this organization that's advocating for inmates to be given clemency. And I specifically asked her to like set me up with like female inmates because I wanted to like understand how, like how mothers are affected. Like what are the differences between like the way men and women are treated in prison and like the way that they're prosecuted and like how prosecution affects them uniquely. And they get into these cases in a lot of strange ways. Like for example, one of the women that I'm talking to, she's serving a life sentence and she never committed a violent crime. She was like convicted of possessing crack cocaine and um, intending to distribute it. And um, when you when you get hit with those charges, you also get hit with a charge that's called drug conspiracy. Those laws, they're federal laws. You can't get charged with that at the state level, I'm pretty sure, but you get charged with it like federally, generally because those crimes are like thought to cross state boundaries. And so those laws were created to kind of stop what you think of when you think of like, you know, big drug conspiracies, like you think of like these huge cartels with like a drug kingpin. These laws were intended to like stop that. But instead, what they've done is they've allowed police and prosecutors to round up what they call drug conspiracies, which are really just like, sometimes they're high level and sometimes they're just very low level. And people get looped into them, even if there's no concrete evidence that um, they actually possessed drugs or dealt drugs or did anything other than communicate with the people who were dealing with dealing with the actual drugs. So the, the women that I'm speaking to, a lot of them were girlfriends of drug dealers who maybe participated in their crimes to like a very minimal extent i mean it's hard to tell too like it's hard to know that you know they're that they're telling the truth that they like that they weren't really all that involved yeah but uh, a lot of them like they said they say things like oh you know like all all i did was like pass on a fedex package all i did was like answer a phone call and i mean it's hard to know the extent but like in any case it's hard to it's hard to make the case that like their prosecution was fair just because they weren't caught with drugs they weren't they didn't have weapons they weren't threatening people they weren't harming anybody all they had all they were convicted of was you know having the misfortune of being the girlfriends of you know someone who was involved in drug dealing and unfortunately in a lot of these cases um the men that they were with received much lighter sentences because the men cooperated with prosecutors and they said things like oh 
in exchange for a lighter sentence. Like, I'll take a plea deal and I'll give you all of these names of people who are allegedly involved in the conspiracy. And a lot of the women decided not to take those plea bargains. They said, oh, but like you didn't catch me with physical drugs, so I'm going to go through a trial and I'm going to prove that I'm innocent. And then, I mean, what happens in the cases is that um, people will testify against each other and say like, oh, no, this person was involved in the conspiracy and I wasn't involved in the conspiracy. Or like they'll testify in order to get like, you know, their own sentences reduced. And so it's just like it's a huge it's a huge mess. Like these conspiracy cases are just like this nightmare web of like charges and accusations and testimony. And no one's really sure like who is involved in everything, but it's very clear that like, you know, like these charges are very overblown. And so like a lot of these women, um, because they didn't testify because they didn't cooperate or because they went to, they exercised their constitutional right and went to trial, um, have been given extremely harsh sentences. Uh, some of them are like things like, 25 years and some of them are life sentences and some of them for some of these women they're first time offenses so like they haven't committed any crimes prior to that so theoretically somebody could have passed on a fedex package to somebody else at one point and then because of their belief or their misguided belief that because they think they're innocent they will be found innocent because they have a lot of faith in the system that way or they just believe in their own ability to convince people otherwise they may still end up in jail for 25 years or life yeah oh my and god and that that's a human's life that's a person's life that's you know and like they're they're not the ones that are like you know dealing with these consequences a lot of times like their families also suffer like right alongside them when these are when these are women like you oftentimes have a lot of children that are very negatively impacted and you know it it's it's really it's really heartbreaking and um i mean like i don't want to i don't want to give the sense i don't i mean it's a huge problem obviously but like i don't want to like give like a mistaken sense of like the scope of it like these are federal cases and I mean, when you look at like the overall prison population in the United States, the majority of prisoners are in the state system, not the federal system. And the majority of prisoners are convicted of violent crimes, not drug crimes. So um, like these women that I'm talking to, they're definitely in the minority. Yeah, it's still it's still a thing that happens. And it's um, and it's common. And for a lot of these women, like what's really heartbreaking is right now. Um, their last hope is um, clemency from President Obama. It's their only option, really, because a lot of those laws regarding like conspiracy and like how to handle drug sentencing have been adjusted over the last few years. And so some of these women that I'm talking to, their sentences, if they were sentenced today rather than 20 years ago or like even 10 years ago, would be dramatically reduced. And because those laws don't apply retroactively, they don't affect these current inmates. And so it's entirely possible to be like a woman who is serving a life sentence for drug conspiracy, who was sentenced maybe 10 years ago and is serving a life sentence and would be sentenced to maybe five or 10 years if she were sentenced today. And there's nothing that she can do about that. There's no recourse. Um, a lot of them have already tried appeals and have had those fail because the laws don't apply retroactively. And so all they can do is um, submit a petition to um, to the federal government to ask for President Obama to give a commutation in sentence, like a reduction in sentence. Yeah. And Obama had um, two years ago, like in 2014, he had started this huge initiative where he was like, I'm going to like address this, um, this drug sentencing problem and I'm going to like start this clemency initiative. And he's now commuted the sentences of like more than a thousand federal inmates who have been by and large convicted of drug crimes. Like they've all been convicted of drug crimes and most of them have no record of, of any violent crimes at all. So, um, I mean, that's been, it's like, it's unprecedented for a president to take that kind of action towards federal inmates and drug crimes. But, um, like the problem is that like, it really is not enough and like time is running out and he still has like the last time I checked the office of the pardon attorney's website, there were something like 14,000 cases that were still pending, like waiting for his approval. And he's out of office on January 20th. Yeah. And so, I mean, what he's been doing is like, I mean, it's pretty remarkable. Like every month, every few weeks or so, the white house will come up with, with this big announcement saying, Oh, we're commuting sentences of like, 75 federal inmates and like it'll list all of their names and like the crimes that they were convicted for 
and um, it'll say like when they're being released. But like, you know, people who have applied for clemency are kind of like, well, you need to speed things up because there are still like there is still potentially like 4000 or 5000 federal inmates where, you know, they could technically get a, a sentence commutation. It's just that like the president hasn't ruled on their application yet. And so they don't know. They don't, like they don't know where their application stands. They don't know whether they're going to get clemency. And um, a lot of them are saying things like, you know, when they when they saw the election, when they were like watching like the results come in and they saw Donald Trump getting elected like that, like there went all of their hope. Yeah. So it's very unlikely that Donald Trump is going to continue this initiative. Right. Like his I, his thoughts on crime have been very well known. There was some case of um some guys who were wrongly convicted of a crime and Donald Trump was like still advocating. God. Yeah. The Central Park Five. Yeah. So that yeah. even even his attitude towards torture, the way he's like. Well, look, we'll waterboard them, and if it turns out, like, they don't actually know the information, well, a lot of them probably deserve to be waterboarded anyway, so this is the rationale of the guy who's gonna be taking over the role that Obama has been doing a pretty good job, like, I, I mean, it's not great when you think about it in simple terms to have a bunch of criminals being released from prison, but when you consider the type of thing that they've been in jail for, it's not really yeah. something that necessarily has to take up 25 years of a person's life like yeah. some kind I of mean, overcorrection on the war on drugs or something it really is like an optics thing too because like yeah i mean it does look like people are kind of afraid sometimes when they see these these announcements like i think one of his commutation like spurts um he had released or he had like announced the early release of like 200 inmates or something like that and like some people when they see that they get a little bit freaked out and they're like that is a lot of criminals that are being released into society but what they don't understand is that like every single day thousands of criminals are released from prison into society because we incarcerate so many people yeah and it just you know i mean you can be scared sure i guess but that's just at a certain point that's just really not productive because you cannot keep people locked up for the rest of their lives and forget about them like that has, I mean, beyond, like, the dramatic effects that it has on the inmates and their families and the communities that they come from, it's a huge economic drain to keep these people in prison. Like, yes, yeah, so is- that's the biggest thing, um, is the the actual cost of keeping all these people in prison versus, like, the way that Donald Trump and a lot of people who come from certain, like, certain types of politicians always sort of... How can I word this? It's very cool and popular for a politician to say that they will be tough on crime. And I think that that is especially relevant today because of the fact that Donald Trump, two days before the vote for election in South Carolina, said that the murder rate was at a 45-year high, which is an outrageous lie and completely made up, something that he completely made up. So if he keeps on like instilling that fear into people, then just the way people perceive crime and criminals and the people who are actually in jail is this sort of fake world where everybody is evil and everyone is trying to kill everyone all the time and that's not necessarily who makes up the bulk of the prisoners in the american prison system at the moment i I, i've never really um looked at things like the drug statistics and i i do know just i think from having read enough things that the war on drugs has been a colossal failure and the way that they put people in jail for drug offenses is just like i don't really know how someone can observe it and not think that on some level it's unethical like just if somebody can end up in jail for 25 years for passing on a package or something i I think that that's crazy yeah no it is and i think I mean, there is there is kind of a growing bipartisan consensus that something needs to be done about the way that we incarcerate people in this country. Like there are like there are a growing number of conservatives that agree. And like, I think they're coming at it more from like an economic perspective. They're like, oh, right. This is extremely expensive. It's draining like all of our state's resources. Like we have to maybe not lock up so many people because like it's just destroying our economy. Um, But like. Like, still, I mean, like, that is, like, a little bit of progress. So I think, I mean, it's it's always really hard to get things passed through, like, through Congress. So I don't know, like, how likely it is to see reforms at the federal level. But, like, I think, like, the tides are kind of changing 
at the states. I mean, when you look at this last election, I mean, like, it's easy to, like, kind of um, get caught up in a lot of despair and just be like, oh, look, we, like, elected President Trump and, like, we, like, implemented, like, ballot measures in, like, states like Florida and California that, like, reinstated the death penalty or whatever. But there were, I don't know, there are some promising aspects of it. Um, I think, like, the public's perception of mass incarceration is kind of starting to be a little bit more enlightened. I think more and more people are less like, oh, we need to be really tough on crime. I mean, it still is definitely a problem. Like, there still are people that are just very, you know, we need to lock them all up. Like, we need to have, like, no mercy at all. But I think, like, very slowly, like, the rhetoric is starting to change. And it you can really see at the local level, like, people, because in America, I don't know how it works in Ireland, um, but, like, in America, people elect their prosecutors and their judges. Um, it, like, no, it's most, not like that here. It's not like that in Canada either, but um, we yeah, don't actually of... have any crime in Ireland. We're a <laughs> really peaceful nation. Well, fancy that. Yeah. No, um, no, they get elected. Um, I don't think in every situation, like like judges are appointed um, in some circumstances, but um, yeah, they're like they they tend to be elected a lot here, and you can even see in like this last election, like people voted out a lot of prosecutors that were determined to be very overzealous on tamping down on crime. Like, a lot of very infamous prosecutors, like Sheriff Joe Arpaio, um, got voted out because, you know, his constituents determined, you know what, like, his tough-on-crime policies and, like, blatant civil rights abuses are just, like, not working for the county anymore. Yeah, I read, and, um, I read a thing about how people... How judges going into politics is like a terrible thing because they get elected off the premise of them being tough on crime. And that should be a conflict of interest. If, if a judge is like, well, look, vote for me. I'm really tough on crime. Here's the statistics to prove it. This is a guy who could be giving out life sentences to people for minuscule crimes purely to further his own career as a politician and move from being a judge to a politician. It seems outrageous to me that that can happen at all. Like, that's, like, a huge abusive position or something there, right? Like, if the judge oh, it, just... Yeah, it really does. It. I mean, I don't, I don't think... I don't know. Like, maybe I just haven't, like, talked to enough experts on this. But, like, it doesn't even really seem to be, like, a point of contention that, like, people's prosecutors and judges are elected. But, like, you know, like, it's just it just seems weird that they are. Because, yeah, they do. They have to campaign. And so, like, you either have, like, judges and prosecutors who are campaigning on, like, a platform of, like, oh, I'm tough on crime, or, like, oh, I'm, like, you know, not willing to contribute to mass incarceration. And so, like, either, I don't know, it just, it's, it is, like, a little bit strange, and, like, I don't know, like, why there isn't more conversation about that. Yeah, that's really weird. Um, for anyone who doesn't watch cop TV shows, uh, the prosecutors are the people who defend the state or the government, right? Like, they're the people who essentially attack the defendants like they're the ones who are like yeah. here's why you should be in jail and then the defense attorneys are the lawyers that the alleged criminals hire to defend them isn't that how it works exactly yeah i know the prosecutors are um yeah they're representing like the united states and so they're saying like oh you've committed an offense against the united states and um you're gonna go to jail for it and then the defense attorneys are like no you're not <laughs> The only crime I've committed is loving the United States too damn much. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, I don't know. I think it also is important, like, when we talk about, like, the war on drugs and, like, when we focus, like, when the media tends to focus on, on drug crimes, like, like what I'm doing right now, like, I think it is also important to kind of push back against that narrative because, I mean, even if, um, even if you released every single, um, drug offender from prisons like at the federal and the state level like across the u.s you would still have a massive mass incarceration problem yeah so like i mean i i hate to like really harp on like the drug point because um there is there is definitely a problem in how we prosecute violent crimes as well and how we look at those people and like i'm not like i'm not quite sure like what the solution is and like i mean i don't know it just doesn't ever seem to be it, it has never seemed to be an issue like in canada like when i look at canadian cases but like we are like sending to jail like a huge amount of people who have been like convicted of committing violent crimes and you have to wonder at a certain point like if that is really the best place for them and like if they should really be given harsh sentences as well for something that they may have done like years ago 
Yeah, the the United States has six to eight as many times, um, or sorry, six to eight times as many incarcerated people per capita as the comparable large prosperous democracies, Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Japan, and the United Kingdom. And one of the things, if you're saying that there are still a, a huge amount of um, people in jail for violent crimes, I think one of the things that immediately jumps out at me when I read that statistic is that all of those countries have laws prohibiting guns to, like, you know, restricting the ease of access to guns. I think that's a huge problem in the United States that maybe they ought to have a look at. Also, I just think that in those countries, there's not, to my knowledge, there's not an immediate difference in class between just ordinary people in the country. Like, there's a huge economic underclass in the United States. And, like, it's crazy to think how different every single part of the United States actually is. But you always think of, like, you know, black communities and ghettos and things like that, and you always think of them as being hotbeds for crime, but I don't think it's it's like a black problem. I think it's a lower-class problem, like a lack of education problem and a poverty problem, and all of these things are basically the things that make crime possible. Like, the, the most common cause of crime is lack of education, right? Like, if people don't get educated properly. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think, like, and you and I have talked about this before, where, like, you just have to kind of like sit back and marvel at the fact that like Americans feel so strongly about the need to punish and get revenge. Yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with it. And I'll give you like, I'll give you an example because like, I mean, when we talk about like violent crimes and people who deserve to be in jail, like the very first big um, court case that I ever covered as a journalist was still when I was, um, when I was a student journalist at um, the university of Alberta and I was covering the case of a man who had um, basically gone on a rampage at my university, and he had shot to death uh, three of his um, his coworkers. Like they were all with uh, G4S security, and they had been refilling an ATM machine. And so he, um, yeah, he shot he shot his coworkers because I like I don't know. We never really like seemed to get a good answer for why he had done that. Like he had just um, he'd kind of been a little bit unhinged, and he had had an argument with his mother the day before and he was stressed out about money. So he shot his coworkers as they were filling up the ATM um, at my school. It was late at night. And then he like took, I think it was like $60,000 in cash and made for the U S border. And so I covered his, um, his adjudication and he had pleaded guilty. So there was no trial, but like I was there for like his entire sentencing. And like, I didn't really think it was that strange at the time because it was like the very first big case that I'd really ever reported on and that I'd, um, really paid like a, like a, a huge amount of attention to. Yeah. But I remember the judge like sitting there for like hours and going through all of the, um, exacerbating and mitigating circumstances and like he was explaining like why he had come to the sentence that he had come to and like that's not like that in itself unusual like uh, judges will will spend a great deal of time explaining why they're giving the sentences that they're giving but um in the end like the judge sentenced this man um his name was travis baumgartner to i think um 40 years to life um with the possibility of parole after those 40 years and um, I think he he'd given him like three different sentences for like each of the shootings that he had committed, and they were all to be served concurrently. So technically, Travis Baumgartner he could get out of jail um, before, like by the time that he's like sixty or something like that. And um, like that, like when I look, like when I think back on that case, and like it it seems to make sense to me. Like, at the time, I was like, yeah, I mean, like, that's, like, the harshest sentence, like, ever given in Canada since the death penalty was abolished. Like, it was, like, a huge national case. Like, people paid attention to this because they were like, this is a very harsh sentence. But, I mean, like, this man technically went on a mass shooting. Yeah. He he killed a bunch of people in a public place for, like, no apparent reason. And, um, you know, if that was being prosecuted here, like, that guy would, like, Travis Baumgartner would have gotten probably the death penalty, depending on what state he was in, and definitely a life sentence with no possibility of parole, like, in any other state. And it just, it's it's kind of strange, because I remember the judge saying things like, you know, even if we believe that, like, this man is beyond possibility of rehabilitation, we have to consider things like, 
um, the safety of his fellow inmates and the safety of the guards that are going to be in the prison watching him. And we have to give him an incentive to be on good behavior. So like putting him away for the rest of his life with no possibility of parole doesn't seem to be ultimately productive in that sense. Like we, why don't we just give him, you know, the eventual chance of getting out and see if he reforms his behavior. Wow. That's really interesting. Just the idea to take into consideration the people who actually work in the prison and his fellow inmates. Like that yeah. seems to me to be bizarre because of all the cop shows I've watched. Like <laughs> I do think the, the notion of revenge is, is, is something that is really right at the surface of like, you know, our psyche pretty much like, even in Ireland, we have this ridiculous notion in our heads, like not everybody, but a lot of people, that criminals are actually treated really well in prison. They all get Xboxes and educations and they get paid to be in there and stuff. And like, if you talk to a certain type of person, they will tell you that criminals have it easier than us and stuff like that. And it's these like outrageous opinions to have. It's like when we think of someone that commits a crime we have to think of them being perpetually punished for the rest of their life. And yeah. I don't know that I could outright say that that's an irrational or a ridiculous way to behave because crime, particularly violent crime, like these are very personal and relatable things that they scare us, they make us angry, and yeah. they fill us with that sort of sense of dread. Like they, they don't make us feel safe and things like that. But I'm not sure that putting people behind bars and in solitary confinement and all of these things, I don't think that they're progressive in the sense that, to me, it would make more sense to try and find out why that person did that thing and then to try and coach them back to a level where they can, like, try and, you know, re-assimilate into society in some way. I think that's the long term. Like, I do believe in punishment. I do think that that's important. But I think that rehabilitation and education are more important than that because ultimately that's what will solve a crime problem is by teaching people and making sure that people's mental health is constantly in check. Like, it's a very utopian and easy way of looking at the problem, but it does seem really weird the way when we find out that, like, a rapist got raped in prison. We're like, yes, that's brilliant. Because, like, what we're saying there is... Well, rape is really good as long as it's used in the right way. And that's such a weird and regressive way to think, but that's just the way that I'm wired, I guess. I don't really believe in revenge. I don't think that it's necessary all the time. and I don't know. It, it's strange. No, I, I agree with that. And I, like one of the things that struck me when I was covering when I was covering that specific case, too, was, um, you know, like after after his sentencing, like we all went out and we were talking, um, to the family members of like the of his victims basically and we were asking them and it's a common thing to do where like every like all the reporters like get their cameras and their microphones like right in like the family's faces and are like what do you think of the sentence and yeah. um i mean and like they like i think like almost every family member or like the majority of the ones that would speak to media said something to the effect of you know, I, I, I'm glad that he got a very harsh sentence, but I don't agree that he should be given parole ever. Um, like one of them said something to like, something like, um, I, I wouldn't have been happy unless he would have been hanged, you know, stuff like that. And I mean, you can totally completely understand why yeah, the would feel that way. But like, I mean, when you look at it, like the justice system doesn't exist to give revenge to the victims. It exists like for a broader purpose, which is to make sure that there's just, I mean, there's a difference between the words justice and revenge. And so, I mean, like, I don't know. And I mean, like, I'm sure, like, everyone will have different opinions on, like, what the punishment should be for somebody who went on a shooting spree like that in a school and killed his coworkers. But, um, you know, I think, like, the judge was very adamant that, like, this can't just be about punishing someone. Yeah, I, like I think it's it's really important to just usually when you talk about a violent crime like if you were to step out and defend the sentence and say well he should be eligible for parole because as the judge said it does give him some kind of an incentive to behave properly in prison and that keeps everybody else a little bit safer if you say that 
the retort from the other side will usually be, well, what if it was your mother that he killed? And yeah. that is a flaw. You shouldn't think that way because the whole point of us being in a society is that it's not relative to the individual. Like, it's not, we're not a society of individuals who decide, well, if that was, if that was my mother, then I would want for him to be, like, it. that's, that's a yeah. flawed way of looking at it. Like, if, if we, do it almost seems like it's too chaotic to regulate that kind of rationale like it doesn't make sense and i know it's really hard to actually look at things that way because these are very emotive topics particularly yeah. when you make them personal like people do but it you have to think about how it works as a society and that's what we are and we need to advance as a society and I just think the best way to do that is obviously education. And I don't think you're educating people by saying, well, this guy committed a crime and is therefore going to be killed. And like, it's so hard to make this case without sounding like you like crime or criminals. Yeah. No, it's no, it's true. But like, I mean, there's a very clear reason why we have judges adjudicate these cases and not like, the family members of victims like you know like i think like i don't know i think it's i mean yeah i mean it's definitely it's hard to argue like against like an emotional like family member of a victim yeah but, um i mean yeah i think like obviously there has to be like some sort of like emotional distance that like a judge has to put between between the case and between like you know what he or she thinks is like the right move like for a society and i think it's also i mean like a lot of the journalists that um was covering the case with me like we we were talking a lot about like what his motives were in that particular instance like why did he like pull out his his gun and like shoot his coworkers like what possible reason could there be and like you know we ended up talking about like him as a person and like it was interesting because like like Travis Baumgartner he was like the exact same age as me he was actually born just the day before I was in a part of the city that wasn't too far away from where I grew up and so it was, I don't know, like, to me, it felt like a little bit personal. I was like, wow, like, we literally, we grew up so similarly, and yet, like, somehow had such different experiences. And, like, I don't know if it's possible for a person to, like, come back from, like, committing such a horrible crime and, like, you know, be a changed, rehabilitated person. Like, personally, like, I really don't foresee him ever getting out of prison. I mean, even if he's eligible for parole, that doesn't mean it's going to be granted to him. Yeah, exactly, and, yeah. Victims' families will definitely be very outspoken um, when a situation like that arises. And I mean, he was like, I mean, it's hard to judge criminals from like when you see them in the courtroom. Like they're quiet. Like they don't really want to like engage. Like they don't really talk. I mean, he was given the option to say something um, in his defense and like make a statement or whatever, and he chose not to say anything. And so it's hard to know whether he can be rehabilitated. But like, I mean, I think the point is like that really shouldn't be the point at all like i mean we just i don't know like whether or not someone's going to be rehabilitated like it's it's hard to know it's impossible to tell for sure and like beyond that like i think it's just um i think i mean people age out of crime like people aren't the same people that they were when they committed these crimes like who knows who this guy is going to be in 40 years like when you look at like graphs of like the ages of criminals like there's a very clear like, people commit crimes when they're in their 20s and their 30s, and they phase out of crime after that, and it's true, like, across the population. Like, you just don't see, like, 70-year-olds, 80-year-olds, 90-year-olds committing violent crimes. And, like, so you have to ask at a certain point, like, what is the use in locking them up? Like, what purpose are you serving? Yeah. Like, is purpose in keeping, like, 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds locked up? Like, even if he, like never repents for his crime. Like, what is the use in keeping him in prison at, at 90 years of age? Yeah, the Norwegian prison system has a remarkable rate um, for re-offenders. Like, basically, if you spend time in a Norwegian jail, statistically speaking, you do not re-offend. Um, they have a really high... I, I, guess, I guess you would have to quantified that or you'd have to say that they do actually rehabilitate people effectively because the statistics imply that 
And when Anders Breivik, the guy who killed like 77 children on that island a few years ago, um, pictures of his cell, or alleged to be his cell, were released on like some rag publication, like the Lad Bible or something like that. And everyone was just like, what? Is that really where they were released? Like those were all like those photos were like all over American media. No, I saw them on the Lad Bible. <laughs> they they didn't get the exclusive rights to it or anything. I'm just I, was, I, I, I thought they were real. No, I said the Lad Bible because of the context of what I'm about to say after. Because okay. the type of person that reads the Lad Bible is the exact type of person who is going on about how absolutely outrageous this is that he's getting treated like this. And I guess you do have that gut reaction to be like well this is spitting in the face of the families of the victims and stuff but statistically he is not going to reoffend. like the guy who went to jail who did all those horrible things is not the guy that's going to come out of prison if he does ever come out it's very unlikely that he will from what I understand I just think that that should be taken into consideration I'm not saying that you have to go ahead and believe that or whatever but Nobody ever really considers that it's possible to rehabilitate criminals. We just think that they're like... It's the same thing with almost everything. Like, we think that if you are an alcoholic, you can never drink moderately again. And the statistics don't show that to be true either. Like, I don't know, it's really weird that we just sort of insist on punishing people, and once someone has a mark or a stain against their character, that's the end of them, and it's not possible to ever, you know, ease yourself back into society as a fully functioning person. There's something in there, you know, like the, it's, they don't re-offend. Like, why is that? Why don't we care about that? Because we're so like, no, they have to be punished. Yeah, we think we're sad. Yeah, we think people, like, don't change and, like, you know, a criminal is always a criminal. And, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really not the case. But I get, like, that um, people are worried about the risk. Like, it's really hard to, to like, to tell a population, like, oh, yeah, like, I mean, he probably won't reoffend. I mean, like, we've done a really good job rehabilitating them. Like, I like to the public, that's just not a risk that they want to take, which is, like, I mean, like, yeah, on a gut level, I can understand that, but it just you know, when you're looking at a population that um, has such a high level of incarceration, like, you know, you're going to have to take some risks. Like, it, it, you, it's not a sustainable way of operating. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fucked up. Yeah, that's, that's about the same conclusion that I had come to. <laughs> Bright shit, the spot of the flashlights We in L.A. ducking both in the shadows with lead pipes The days is all night All night See, if I pay Edison, no medicine These blues ain't no better when My fever rise in the jungle as quick as a price fight Days is all night Yeah, they all night so that's the end of that. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope it gave you food for thought. Hope that it sparked some kind of live wire in your brain and uh, you're going to give me loads of great topic suggestions. Now, for real though, um, I am sorry that it wasn't the episode that I planned it to be. But at the same time, I think a lot of people are probably quite comfortable with the idea of there being bonus content going up every now and then. Um, for those of you who are struggling to keep up with the number of episodes that I've been recording lately... Did you ever think this would happen? But also, uh, don't worry, I'm going to be taking, I think, a two-week break uh, just while I go. I'm going on holidays, and I'm going on Friday. I'm recording this on Monday. I just don't have the time to record any more podcasts between now and then. So, um, as far as I know, you should be treated to episode 74 on Friday. It should be awesome. You should really enjoy it. And then we're going to take a break and return on the 23rd of December. That's the plan. Planning on an episode with entirely new guests. And it should be really, really, really good. I'm very, very hyped for it. But currently, I think planning may be a little bit of a 
a problem. But how and ever, it doesn't matter. This is done. Um, obviously, this is one of the shortest episodes that we've ever done, and that's why it only reached bonus episode status. But um, yeah, I will be very active on Instagram over the course of my holiday if anyone has any interest in that type of sort of... W- what would you even call it? Like self-satisfied, aggrandizing, showy-offy kind of posts? I'll be making lots of those. I'm staying in a place that's got a private pool. Like, I'm finally going to learn to swim, guys. No, but for real, I think that... I, d- I don't even know why I'm still talking. The song ending the episode is Digging for Windows by Zach De La Rocha. It's produced by LP from Run the Jewels. Um, It's awesome. I went for some reason when I think of prison systems I just think of Zach De La Rocha. I think Rage Against the Machine must have done like 150 songs about prisons and private prisons and stuff like that. So, um I don't really know what this song is about. I haven't listened to it long enough, but it's dope. So, it's the one that's closing the episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. I've been El De Niro. See you for episode 74 and if not, I will see you on the 23rd of December. I will enjoy my holiday. Thank you so much for saying that in the comments. Ah, oh, this is too much. You shouldn't have Anyway, peace out, yo. The future's stacked like a rubber band Off my phone on a hand-to-hand Eat two from the waist, put two in his roof And I can't steal him screens all night These days is all night Not a ride there, portfolios like rodeos Rise every time my cherry glows On the end of my cigarettes, the smoke blows Through the bars, and I see your laugh faces He strolls away, says I off that rollaway or it's fuck your visitation days So I pop off and it's solitaire I dream of off and he's trying to stairs And it's skin off my fingers tear Yeah we digging for windows here Where the days is all night Quick as it offer, what party a pocket? I put these caps in capital.